We turn again this morning to Romans chapter 8. We continue our brief consideration of this section which unfolds to us the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as God's people. This morning we read the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8. First, that foundational verse, that's the summary of the previous chapters in Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And now our text is the verses 9 through 11. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, last Sunday in considering Romans 8 verses 5 through 8, we were brought before the great contrast that the apostle sets before us in this chapter. The contrast of death and life. It's the antithesis between being in Christ by a living faith and being apart from Christ and having a mind consumed by the things of the flesh versus having that spiritual life and peace. The focus in verses 5 through 8 was upon the dreadfulness of life apart from Christ. And I told you that what awaited in the development of this chapter was the positive the beautiful truth of what it is to have life, to have the spirit of Christ living in you. And to that we give our attention this morning. We have to remember that the purpose of the apostle here is to set before us the assurance of our salvation as those who are in Christ Jesus and therefore those in whom Christ lives by his spirit. That assurance is grounded in Christ's work from beginning to end. Not only has he taken our guilt upon himself and imputed to us his perfect righteousness, satis he's done that by his death on the cross, satisfying God's justice, and securing that astounding verdict, no condemnation. But he continues his work in us 
by freeing us from the law of sin and death. He does so by his spirit. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The object of that work, as stated in verse 4, is that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Now, as we have reached verses 9 through 11, we are given to see what it means that the spirit of Christ dwells in us. The Spirit of Christ dwells in us. So I call your attention this morning to the indwelling Spirit. We notice, first of all, who He is. Secondly, the life that He gives. And finally, the assurance that He works. In the first place, this indwelling Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Holy Trinity, one with the Father and the Son. And you might say, well, that's obvious. Why is it necessary to develop this idea in a sermon? But we have to know him who himself is in us. We have to know that he is very God. We have to know that his work in us, therefore, is sovereign, is perfectly wise and powerful. We have to realize that the Holy Spirit is not some nebulous power that that Christ pours into us and by which we now do what is pleasing in his sight. The person of the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of Christ, now lives in us and works in and through us. Again, we have to consider how he works. We have to consider the nature of the life that he gives us. But right now, we have to know who he is. Verse 9 speaks of him as both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. And by that distinction, there is also expressed the unity of the Godhead in the Spirit. In one Spirit, the Spirit of God is sent by God. No one can approach God but by the Spirit. The things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 11. And God gives us his Spirit that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. The Spirit of God is the one who created us. Who gave us life. Job 33 verse 4. Many times scripture refers to the spirit as the spirit of God. But in this text the same spirit is referred to as the spirit of Christ. He's the spirit therefore that Christ promised as the comforter whom the father would send in his name. And let's not forget, Jesus said in John 14, verse 17, that the Father would give that comforter to abide with you forever. And he added in verse 18 of that chapter, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. When our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished his work, the work that God had given him to do in our redemption, when he took his place at at God's right hand in heavenly glory, God gave him the spirit to give to the church, to us, to dwell with us and in us. When you think about the identity of the spirit, his Godhead, His fellowship 
with the Father and the Son. The fact that he dwells with us and in us, the very truth is astounding. The intimacy of him who dwells with the Father and the Son in eternity, now dwelling in us, is impressed upon us here. The triune God dwells in us by his Spirit. His dwelling is known by his working. But the intimacy that we enjoy with the Spirit of Christ is an intimacy the likeness of which there is none. His presence and his power is manifest in us. It's his gracious and familiar presence by which he opens our hearts so that we hear the voice of our Savior even as he opened the heart of Lydia so that she attended unto the things which were spoken by the Apostle Paul, Acts 16, verse 14. By his intimacy, he comforts us. He leads us. What a tremendous blessing is ours that flows from the cross, from Christ's perfect satisfaction for us and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit upon us. Christ himself emphasized the special nature of this gift, the intimacy of the Spirit, when he said in John 14 verse 17 that the world knows nothing of this. The Spirit who abides with you forever is him whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. It is this intimate presence of the Spirit in us by which we have that comfort and peace that others do not have. In addition, as the Spirit of God and of Christ, he dwells in us unchangeably. He has taken up in us his constant dwelling place. He's not in you as a guest. He isn't here to come and go. He owns you as the Spirit of Christ. He's taken up his residence in you. And as verse 10 expresses, this is what it means to have Christ in you. Christ dwells in us by his Spirit. By his unchangeable dwelling in us, he's the one who's the very source of life and happiness. John 14, verse 14, reveals that he is an ever-flowing well of water, springing up into everlasting life. Notice that. Everlasting life. Think about that when facing the trials of your earthly sojourn. Think about that when you are overwhelmed with a guilty conscience. He dwells in us unchangeably, never to leave nor forsake us. And finally, his identity establishes the sovereignty of his work in us. He's not dependent upon us. He's not an intruder in the house who forces his will and way upon us. He owns us. He leads us sovereignly. He works in us both to will and to do. And he does so to the glory of our Redeemer. 
1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? And while the emphasis in that particular text is on the church as his dwelling place, the same truth is is applied personally three chapters later, when the apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Where he dwells, therefore, he's sovereign. He is chief, no one else. Not you and I are chief. The Spirit of Christ rules. He's the one who regenerates us. He's the one who unites us to Christ by faith. And who gives us the life of Christ. The spirit of Christ calls us powerfully, efficaciously, applying to our hearts the word of God, the gospel of our salvation. The fruit of faith in all the activity of our spirit and mind and body is denoted in Galatians 5 as the fruit of the Spirit. He's the one who sanctifies us, conforming us to the image of God's dear Son, Romans 8, verse 29, and that to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. So that they that are after the Spirit walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit with the Spirit performing his sovereign work in us, the righteousness, the law, is fulfilled in us, as we saw in verse 4. And we love the Lord our God and our neighbor as ourselves. That brings us then to consider the life that he gives us. Once again, we notice immediately in verse 9 the emphasis on the contrast between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. We have to see this stark contrast and we have to embrace by faith the truth set forth here. We saw last week from verses 5 through 8 that to be carnally minded is death. And that is so because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But here comes the contrast. And let's not overlook this. But ye are not in the flesh... But in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of Christ dwells in the spirit of God, dwell in you. This is what it means to be in Christ Jesus, partaker of his life by the spirit. This is true of Christ's church, of Christ's whole church, his redeemed the body of which Christ is the head. But because the apostle knows that not every member outwardly belongs to the body of Christ, he adds, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he's none of his. But ye, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That's the stark contrast 
between having Christ's life and therefore walking after the Spirit or being yet dead in sin. In this text, and particularly in verses 10 and 11, the inspired apostle sets forth the truth of the actual position of the Christian. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. It is here, people of God, that we have to face a matter that has become a matter of controversy of late. Is the Christian, is the regenerated child of God in whom the Spirit dwells, totally depraved? Total depravity, you understand, is the, is the reform doctrine, the doctrine of Scripture, that man, the natural man, is dead in sin, incapable of doing any good, and inclined to all wickedness. It expresses the truth of total depravity, expresses the effects of the fall upon man from a spiritual ethical point of view. Man who stood perfectly in the image of God became in the spiritual sense the image of the devil. I emphasize in the spiritual ethical sense because man remains man. Man remains the rational, moral, thinking, willing creature that God had created in the beginning. But total depravity means that he is spiritually dead as a consequence of the fall. It's the truth set forth in verses 5 through 8 that we considered last Sunday evening of those who are not in Christ and therefore have not the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's the doctrine of total depravity set forth in our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 3. Article 14 of our Belgic Confession sets forth the same truth when it treats the creation of man and the fall of man, by which fall man made himself liable to corporal, that is physical or bodily, and spiritual death. It then defines that death. And being thus become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways, he hath lost all his excellent gifts which he had received from God, and retained only a few remains thereof which, however, are sufficient to leave man without excuse. For all the light which is in us is changed into darkness, as the scriptures teach us, saying, The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not, where St. John calleth men darkness. The question now is, is that what defines the regenerated child of God. That this would be a matter of discussion, I can well understand. When I was in seminary many years ago, the instruction included not just lectures, but a great deal of dialectical instruction. So the professors would put us on the hot seat, so to speak, by asking us questions and making us defend the position that we took. If we took the wrong position, they were able to address it and to give us appropriate instruction from the Word of God in our Reformed Confessions. 
but we were also able to ask our professors questions. And I want to say for our young people especially, you ought to feel free to ask questions. Ask questions in the catechism classroom. If you don't understand something, ask the question. But the deal was this with our professors. We were free to ask any questions just so long as we were willing to go to the Word of God and submit to its instruction. So there was a question that my fellow classmates and I asked our professors, especially Professors Hooksema and Hanko, pursuing it with them at different times and in different contexts, examining the distinction between the old man and the new man. Is the regenerated Christian totally depraved? Professor Hooksema would respond, while in speaking about the Christian, you must take into account the necessary distinctions between the old man and the new man, as our catechism does, for example, in Lord's Day 33, when discussing true conversion, the Christian is not identified by the old man, but by the new, by his life in Christ. The Christian cannot say, I am totally depraved. He's in receipt and ownership of that one single exception that the Heidelberg Catechism makes in question and answer 8. Regeneration by the Spirit of God. Regeneration unites us to Christ. Regeneration gives us his life. The Christian, and this is where we can understandably get things mixed up a bit, the Christian still has a totally depraved old nature. And we'll say more about that. But I am not defined by my old nature. I'm defined by the life of Christ in me. That's what it is to be a Christian. So Paul in Romans 7 does not say, In me dwelleth no good thing. He qualifies that. In me, that is, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And so he writes in Romans 8 verse 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. The Spirit is the life-giving Spirit. We don't continue in death. Professor Hanko was a bit more strong when we debated this subject with him. And I say when we debated this subject, I refer to debate as a means to understand the issue more clearly. As our professor drew out the debate for the purpose of instructing us, but he said to us, you may not confuse the old man with who I am and referred to me as totally corrupt, dead in sin. I don't want anyone, he said, to say that about me, because it is a slander of the work of God in me. I am a new man. I am a new creature in Christ. He added that we must not forget either that though the old man is guilt-ridden, totally corrupt, depraved in all that he does, totally incapable of doing any good, that old man does not exist side by side in me with the new man in some kind of equilibrium, but the new man is in fact victorious. 
Don't forget that, he said. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And faith is the victory which overcomes the world in my own flesh too. Where the world is and where the battle is the hottest. I understood all the more clearly years later that this question is really an issue of our understanding the life of Christ in us and more particularly the work of the Holy Spirit. We may not deny that powerful work of the Holy Spirit of Christ in us. When we turn again to the words of our text in Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, the apostle would have us understand that the Spirit dwells nowhere, but where he has changed the heart so much as to create a clean heart. Being inseparable from Christ, The Spirit dwells where the life of Christ is. Life is the opposite of death. And that's exactly the contrast introduced in verse 9. Being in the Spirit is exactly the opposite of being in the flesh. When we say a person is in the flesh, we're not speaking about a Christian who has fallen who has succumbed to the lusts of the flesh, in the flesh is the state and condition of the unbeliever, the natural man apart from Christ. The Christian is no longer in the flesh. He or she is no longer in that state or condition of spiritual death, but alive in Christ. And a Christian never goes back to being in the flesh. Once the Spirit has united us with Christ and given us the life of Christ, we're in a new realm. We are new creatures. And that relationship between us and Christ is unbreakable. And that's the truth, of course, upon which stands the biblical teaching of the unbreakable bond of marriage. Unbreakable until Christ severs it in death. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. That means the Spirit of Christ is controlling us and leading us. His work is not just that of changing our hearts, that he changes our hearts, that he gives us life who were dead, means that he also leads us as those who are, are alive. And let's not forget, people of God, life comes to expression in activity, doesn't it? Life comes to expression in activity of the mind. We are minding the things of the Spirit. He reveals to us whatsoever Christ has said to us in His Word. He also works in us in such a way that we actively embrace what Christ has said. We now have an inner desire to walk in God's precepts. We sing with the psalmist from the heart. Oh, how love I thy law. It's my meditation all the day. We will the will of God. That's the Spirit's work in us who are alive in Christ Jesus. 
We walk after the Spirit, as the Apostle wrote in verse 1 and again in verse 4. That's activity. That speaks to how we live in our homes, how we treat one another in our homes, in our marriages. It speaks to how we live in the workplace. As the Spirit gives us an understanding of the calling and the privilege God has given us to serve Him. And not only that, but as the Spirit works in us, we do that which is pleasing in God's sight. That's true in you, is it not? That walking after the Spirit involves our senses, our hearing, even our hearing of the Word of God. We delight in God's Word. That's why we long to gather twice on the Lord's Day, don't we? The Spirit of life in Christ Jesus living in you. We despise that which is offensive to God whether that be false doctrine or behavior that's not in harmony with God's word. We hear the words of Proverbs 28, verse 25, for example. He that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife. And we are troubled. Walking after the Spirit involves closing our ears to gossip or slander or hearing one side of the story and making rash judgment. Walking after the Spirit is an expression that addresses the activity of our speech. It also governs our church life, our worship, our treatment of the neighbor, our prayer life, You see, all our activity as Christians, as those who are in Christ Jesus, is led by the Spirit. The life that is ours in Christ, and that comes to expression in us and through us, is the Spirit's work. Our activity, the Spirit's work. Our confessions emphasize that. The Canons of Dort, in the third and fourth heads of doctrine, Article 11, speaks of God powerfully illuminating our minds by his Holy Spirit that we might rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God. It speaks of the Spirit pervading the inmost recesses of the man, infusing new qualities into the will, which though heretofore dead, he quickens. From being evil, disobedient, and refractory, he renders it good, obedient, and pliable, actuates and strengthens it that like a good tree it might bring forth the fruits of good actions. Article 14 speaks of faith as the gift of God because it is in reality conferred, breathed, and fused into the the elect child of God, insisting with Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, That God produces in us both the will to believe and the act of believing also. He does that by his spirit. Article 16 sets forth the truth that this work of God's grace does not treat men as senseless stocks and blocks. Nor takes away their will and its properties. Neither does violence thereto but spiritually quickens, heals, corrects, and at the same time sweetly and powerfully bends it, the consequence being 
that a ready and sincere spiritual obedience begins to reign in which the true and spiritual restoration and freedom of our will consists. That's the wonder of the indwelling spirit. He doesn't dwell in us like the Pelagian and the Arminian teaches that if we work, God will help us. That our doing is the condition of God's work. No, the Spirit does not dwell in us in such a way that God works and we work alongside and independent of the Spirit's work. That he gives us the power to do and then leaves it to us. What's sometimes referred to as a, as a synergistic view of sanctification The indwelling spirit works in us in such a way that he gives us the life of Christ and activates and strengthens it in its every expression. He works in us in such a way that we willingly and actively live as God's children. He issues the call, the call, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. In all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. But he also works in us both to hear and to do that to which he calls us. But while never denying the life that is ours in Christ Jesus and the spirit of life that dwells in us, we also have to take into account the stark reality of the expression in verse 10, the body is dead because of sin. You see, that's why the spirit of life in Christ Jesus in us involves us in such a great spiritual struggle. The apostle has already spoken of the carnal mind. He has spoken about the flesh and sinful flesh. But here he introduces the concept of the body. And he's talking about our physical bodies through which that old man comes to expression. The body is dead, says the apostle. It's dead because of sin. He doesn't say the body shall die. That's true enough. But that body is dead. That body's still dead. I am alive in Christ. He's speaking about us in whom the spirit dwells. But our body is a mortal body. A corrupt body. And that's true also in the moral sense. The body is the instrument of sin. And the battleground in our struggle against sin. That's true of the mind. As it's true of all the body. The body has a law of sin in its members, to use the language of Romans 7, verse 23. So to put it another way, my nature is not renewed in regeneration. My nature is not changed. If a man were given a new nature in regeneration, it would follow that his children could not inherit a corrupt nature from him. Then total depravity would be denied. We and our children are conceived and born in sin. We had to be regenerated in order to have life in Christ Jesus. So our nature 
as it comes to expression in our body is not changed. The body is dead because of sin. But does that death of our bodies, does that depravity of our natures overrule the life of Christ in us? Does it overrule our regenerated heart and will? No. To insist upon that would be to deny the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 10 once again. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And the righteousness spoken of there is not only the imputed righteousness of Christ that accomplished our justification, but the righteousness imparted to us by the Spirit, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, as we saw in verse 4. The Spirit abides in and with those who are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit of Christ accomplishes God's purpose in our salvation from beginning to end. That's true in you and in me right now, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. There's a decisiveness about the work of the Spirit. And that decisiveness shouts the victory for you and for me. That work of the Spirit assures us of the victory, even of our glorification. That's verse 11. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. You realize, I trust, it's been emphasized here, that our assurance of victory can only be found in our Redeemer's work, the abiding work of the Spirit of Christ. We were reminded in verse 10 that our natures are entirely polluted. That means that every good work that proceeds from me is polluted by the sinfulness of my nature. Nothing that I do, therefore, can assure me of the final victory of my glorification. While I might be encouraged by the evidences of the Spirit's work in me and observe to my comfort the fruit of the Spirit in my own life. My assurance is in this, that the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and who has given me Christ's life now dwells in me and is the one by whose hand, as it were, God shall give resurrection life to this mortal body and remove every last element of sin. In spite of all the sin that remains in me, it's the decisive nature of the Spirit's work applying Christ's life to me that assures me of the victory. What blessedness in being a Christian. We're not only in Christ, but Christ is in us by his Spirit. Galatians 2 verse 20. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Young people 
There is nothing in the world that compares to being a Christian. Nothing. A life of struggle it is, to be sure. The body is dead because of sin. And there are times when our corrupt nature attempts to dominate. There are times when we neglect our fellowship with the Father. When we give no attention to his word, we sin against him. We grieve our own conscience. But because of the life that is ours in Christ Jesus, and by the Spirit's work, he brings us to repentance. He turns us from our sin. He moves us to engage in the battle of faith and to see the victory. That's the great activity of faith. The work of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The man dead in sin cannot and does not engage in the battle of faith. We do. You do, don't you? We do because we live. We engage in that battle of faith, longing to be free from the body of this death. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Philippians 3 verse 21. Then the life of Christ in us will no longer be clouded by our own sinful flesh. We have life everlasting. That life that is ours in the risen Lord assures us of our glorification, body and soul. The work that he has once begun shall by his grace be fully done. Amen. Gracious Father, We stand in awe of thy work, the wonder work of thy grace, the life of Christ dwelling in us by his Holy Spirit. Strengthen us in our faith that we lay hold of our Savior and live. In the light of thy word, to thy name's honor and glory, for Jesus' sake, amen.